Hey, everybody. Welcome to Respect, Humility, Empathy podcast, RHE. We are here today with Paul Axton, who does something with swords and plowshares, apparently. I think <laughs> he's that's a sword a, fighter. I think that's a scripture reference. That or he's a, he's a farmer, like a, a, a fighting farmer. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But or Isaiah's going could... to clue us in. Ahead, yeah, he could Isaiah. possibly be a Michael Jackson fan because Heal the World actually uh, uses that <laughs> expression. But hey, everybody, this is uh, Isaiah Diesel at RHE, Respect, Humility, Empathy uh, podcast, where those are the three values that we have as we're trying to traverse the universe. We're trying to make sense of everything that's around us. And sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But we're trying to learn off of each other. We're trying to grow. We're trying to have respect and, you know, maybe just see things from a different uh, perspective. And speaking of which, uh, I want to thank you, uh, Mr. Axton, for – should I call you Mr. Axton or Paul? Because oh, he's actually good. a pro former professor uh, at my uh, university. So uh, I'm not sure if, if, I, if I gave you the lowdown, but uh, you've walked into the lion's den because uh, Marshall's an atheist. Oh, <laughs> Roar. <laughs> I'm an unwilling atheist. I'm an atheist against my will. Uh, anyway, uh, Paul, can you tell us where you're calling out of? I'm in uh, Moberly, Missouri. Moberly. Yeah. And uh, how's the weather out there? I, I heard it got pretty cold in the Midwest. Well, we, we've been having uh, cold weather, and it's had been snowy. And my I have two outside dogs, and I had to bring them into the basement. I was afraid oh. they would turn into dog sickles. But, uh, dog sickles. Uh, today it's uh, up in the 50s, and so it's the snow, still some snow on the ground, but it's melting. I got a funny story for you, uh, Paul. Uh, so I'm from California, but I went to school there in Missouri, right? So um, when I first got there, maybe about two days in, um, it started snowing. And I ran outside, and I was running around in the snow, and I was... Um, and I was just catching on my hands and I, and I ran back inside and I told everyone, I said, you guys, you guys are snowing outside. And <laughs> they looked up at me like, is this guy on drugs? And I was like, it's snowing, guys, it's snowing. And then, and then I ran back outside and I came back in. I, I mean, I was like a, like a five-year-old kid. And they're like, yeah, you come talk to us in a month, buddy, and see if you're still all excited. So... You know, the, the snow is fun to visit, uh, but living in it, oh, my God, there's so many different things. Like with your windshield, you got to scrape it off. And then, um, yeah, so, and then another time, uh, do you remember a gentleman by the name of George Witzke? Uh, no. I don't think so. He, he was a student there, but I was telling him that I was parked up on a hill and my car started to slide. Yeah, I mean, it was so scary. And I was telling him, I was like, George, it was so scary, man. And he's driving. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Isaiah. He zoomed up his car, slammed on the brake, and turned the wheel. And we skid out for about 30 feet. And I was just petrified. I was like, we're going to die. Like, ah. And he was just laughing hysterical. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're joking about your, your website. But uh, I believe that's a quote from Isaiah. It is in Isaiah. And it's in Micah that uh, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And we actually call our organization forging plowshares. <laughs> it's partly there in the uh, verse, but when I was a boy about 16, my father 
sent me to horseshoeing school. And so actually I worked on a forge for many years. Uh, not very good because I didn't stay with it. But um, so I, I, uh, uh, we, I feel like that we're in the business of making peace. And that's the idea mm. of cultivating the, the peaceable kingdom. And so we're trying to capture that in the, the foraging part of it. That's amazing. Uh, you also lived in Japan, though, correct? I was in Japan for a little over 20 years. Wow. <clears throat> Actually lived there two different times. I lived there in uh, 1980, and then we came back in 1984, and we were there until uh, 2005. And my children were all born there. And... One of the things I heard about the, the katanas, the Japanese sword, is that one of the reasons why it's so powerful is because they continually... Uh, they, they, they continually were bending it and uh, it took a lot of time to get the impurities out. But I kind of feel sometimes in, in religion, uh, in religion and with God and with peoples that we got to continually be forging the power. It's, it's a, it's a daily thing. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's a, it's a process for all of us. And so it, uh, yeah, that's an, ent I hadn't thought about the uh, Japanese equivalent, but, it's still a lost art, you know, or an ongoing art that is almost lost. I think there's, you know, the master swordsmiths are, you know, very, very rare now. But, mm. yeah, the process of hand-making a Japanese sword is uh, you just have to continually beat the steel over and over until you can get, get it where it will hold an edge. So, yeah, it's a good, a good image. Mm. Marsh? Uh, I'm kind of interested in that organization. What exactly does it do, though, specifically? Well, we uh, have a uh, website. We do podcasts. Uh, I put out actually a couple podcasts a week, and then we I do a, a blog. I do a blog a week, and then we have people that do guest blogs. And we have a uh, Bible Institute, Forging Plowshares, or Plowshares Bible Institute, uh, that we offer classes through distance learning, online learning. Right. Mainly, actually, all of our students have been uh, graduate students. They all have at least a undergraduate degree. In fact, most of them have graduate degrees. So it's kind of a, a, a group of people that we come together and do classes. But then we have a levels of learning, three different levels of peace studies uh, in which we take someone through right at the moment. We're about to offer a class starting uh, March 8th uh, on the history and theology of peace in which we'll do a, a comprehensive picture of the history of nonviolence beginning in scripture mm. um, and then looking at the early church and then you know, you have the Constantinian uh, compromise, you might call it, uh, in which it seemingly there is a loss of the idea of nonviolence and just war arises. But still, the point of the class is, well, no, actually, a, a witness to peace continues, even where it seems to be totally obscured. Uh, and then there, so we'll follow the peace movements all the way through until the rise in the Protestant Reformation of specifically peace churches like the Anabaptists, um, the Quakers, uh, 
and several other, you know, peace churches. But the idea is that throughout church history and in the, in the Bible, there is a consistent witness to nonviolence that unfortunately in mainline Christianity, uh, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, it really doesn't matter that it has been due to circumstance. It's an understanding that's been obscured. And so the focus of our organization is to bring out what I think is central to the gospel. And that is this notion of nonviolence, of a peaceable gospel, that the whole point of the gospel is making peace. And so the PBI, the courses are all geared toward that, um, uh, specifically peace. Um, and then we also have a group here in town that we, uh, because of the COVID, we're actually a little less active, but we meet for various things. Uh, even during the COVID, we've continued to meet in small groups. Um, but yeah, that's basically the, the, the program. So your program then teaches nonviolence and teaches people how to, I imagine, affect change uh, through nonviolence, correct? It is focused more on a theology of nonviolence than on, in other words, there would be groups, and I, I do a, we do a little bit of both, but there are groups that are focused on a practical implementation Mm -hmm. of nonviolence, which I'm completely in sympathy with, but our particular focus is just simply to uh, get the theology of peace there. And we do a bit of impl implementation, uh, practical implementation of that nonviolence. But there are groups that would be more, you know, focused on an outward activism. Uh, we are not so focused on going in and destroying nuclear weapons or we, we, uh, that sort of, in other words, there can be a kind of protest that itself can become violent, but in as much right. as, yeah. as possible, true. we try to, I, I've done podcasts and interviews with people, uh, on both sides of that spectrum. So, yeah. Uh, Mr. Axton, I'm sorry, Paul, that's going to be hard to, to break that habit. So forgive me if I slip there, but, uh, so Paul, um, wow. So a couple of things I want to say. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to say, uh, first of all, sorry, I'll have to edit that out. My, my wife's taking my daughter to school right now, but, um, so first of all, that must put you at odds with a certain element of, uh, of, of Christians out there um, because there does seem to be a certain maybe a predominant side of Christ Christians who like the idea of war and like the idea of us versus them and uh, are, well, are you familiar Christ, are, Christofascism yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think you might have um, Paul might have used those exact words in, in one of his writings or something to that effect. But um, but are, are you familiar with uh, Bill Maher, Paul? I'm not. Okay. So Bill Maher is a very famous um, comedian slash libertarian slash um, 
atheist. Okay, so he made a he made a movie called Religious, and and me, I was an atheist for many years myself. So um, that was like my favorite movie. That was like my comfort movie. I'd go to that movie frequently. But one of the things that he says in there is he's trying to get this to the source of what everyone is believing. And he says, you know what? He says, okay, even if I buy into Christian theology, he's like, I don't see the, the leap that you would make from Christianity to this America first, let's bomb our way to freedom mentality. And, and he's a comedian, so he's saying things in a comedic way. But I thought, how horrible is it that Christians or non-Christians, atheists, many times under, not only understand Christian theology better, but they live it out better than most uh -huh. Christians. It's uh -huh. got to be the biggest irony I think I've ever seen in my life. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a blasphemous movie. I don't quite recommend you watch it. But because um, he is making fun of religion, he is a comedian, but uh, he has some great observations in there. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there, there are several things I think you have to get out of the way uh, to, to get this. First of all, yeah, re religious nationalism and the evangelicalism in this country. And we're living uh, through a particular horrid time in which the emptiness of evangelical Christianity has shown itself, I think, not just in the support of Donald Trump, but it has been a decades long thing that has been mm -hmm. unfolding. It, 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 is of actually a fairly recent phenomenon that you get the joining of uh, Christian, you know, nationalism that it you you can trace it uh, mm. within the post-war period. But of course, the the problem in any discussion of Christianity is we're already dealing in an understanding of you know just a basic definition of religion, and I would probably tend to agree with many atheists or many people who would talk about an inherent violence to religion. But there is a, a mistake here in that, well, there is also an inherent violence in the human heart. Mm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Rene Girard, but Girard then does, he traces, Girard was an anthropologist and a literary specialist. And he traces then the root of human culture and the rise of human religion around violence and the scapegoating mechanism. And it, uh, he then does a study of religious myth. And he shows that in fact, uh, within religious myth, there is this, an originary violence, an original murder that doesn't, the thing about the myth, it's actually a, a covering over of an historic event. Gerard comes to this theory uh, really before, and he thinks that he picks up the Bible and he starts reading the Bible thinking that it will also fit into his mythological categories. And of course, he uh, in the Old Testament, of course, large parts of it do, but when he reads things like the story of Cain and Abel, in which the murder is there, you know, you see it front and center, or the story of Joseph and his brothers, and then you get to the passion of Christ, his understanding is that what is taking place in Christianity is an exposing of a universal mechanism, the scapegoating mechanism, that in fact you're going to encounter uh, in every cultural system. And by, you know, you can just add religion 
it is a religio-cultural system. I, I would even say even cultures today that in some way they imagine they repudiate religion. Well, actually nationalism and the kind of nationalism we have here in the United States, it functions very much like a religious ideology functions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, it, in, in that sense, I think that Christianity stands over and against that is Christianity rightly understood, the Christianity of the New Testament, the Christianity of Christ, stands over and against human religion. Hmm. Marsh? Hmm. I'm digesting that. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, Paul's a thinker, so it's, he's kind of a little <laughs> bit above us. So I don't know about I think that. It's a little time to register. So are, are you saying, Paul, that religion, when properly understood... Uh, or I should say Christianity, when properly understood, is actually the superior of religion, that perhaps organized religion then is uh, a corruption of Christianity as properly understood. I, I like the way you said it. I would just make a small correction. There's a huge problem with the word religion. Mm -hmm. In other words, we all use this word like we're actually saying something, and we all think we know what we mean when we say the word religion. But religion is a very, actually, when you get into it, it's a very vague term. Mm. And, and, you know, that is Buddhism, Hinduism. Uh, and so uh, there is the sense that religion and culture are simply integrated into one another. Mm. So that they're, they're very hard. Maybe in uh, Japan, Korea is kind of unusual, but Japan, you know, if you ask somebody, if they're religious, they would say no. They might even say no while they're at the shrine praying. Uh, most all people practice the religion, but the thing that they believe in is not the religion per se. The thing they believe in is being Japanese. And so I think it, the, the talk about Christianity as superior then, or I think that what is unfolding in Christianity rightly understood in the teaching of Christ, is an exposure then of what is in a Girardian sense, which is hidden, or if, you know, you think of the, you know, sacred canopy, uh, canopy of Peter Berger, I don't know if you're, familiar, if you're sure if you're familiar with Berger, mm -hmm. his idea is that, you know, that what religion does in a, you know, it, the religion is kind of the canopy that holds the culture together. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar idea to what Gerard is saying. There is a sense then that Christianity undoes the scapegoating me mechanism. And in fact, there is the sense that it removes that canopy because the canopy is inherently a kind of deception. It's the de a deception on the order of any kind of, and I'll use the, the term idolatry, but idolatry is just, you know, it, it's true in nationalism that people say, well, I'm Japanese or I'm American. Mm -hmm. They're thinking that in saying this, that they're identifying something that has an essence to it, as if there is an essence to Americanness or Japanese-ness, just as an idolater would point at his idol and say, here is the true essence of things. And of course, what we realize is there's nothing there in terms of an ontology or an essence, that it's actually a kind of absence. 
And I think that absence or that, um, you know, kind of uh, deception uh, is pervasive in culture, in religion, and even in the human psyche. That is, the human psychology is going to function around. It's going to do the same thing. And so what is happening in uh, Christianity is an exposure of this reifying tendency, this idol-making tendency that you just see all around us. It's there in capitalism. You know, you hold up money. Is that a real thing or is that sim a symbolic thing that we all circulate? Well, we all, in a sense, we all look at it and we say, well, well that's just a piece of paper. But in another sense, we, kind of, we treat it as if it is the ultimate determiner of, of our values. And so part of what is happening, I think a key part of what is happening, but not the only thing that is happening in the New Testament is an exposure then of this thing that is almost subconscious. It's so pervasive uh, that I don't think we have access to it apart from uh, the teaching of Christ. So Jesus Christ comes at a time in which from the Old Testament, God hasn't revealed himself for 400 years, okay? So this is called, uh, for laymen's or even me, I, I, I'm not huge into theology, but it's called like the intertestinal period where it's understood that the heavens are not open and God's not revealing himself. So whenever he appears, or actually when John appears, the first people on their punch list is the religious folk, you know, because they're like, they're, they're basically saying, you guys totally butchered this message that we gave you. And so here's X, Y, and Z, what you've done wrong, one. And here's how the non-religious around you are doing it better, okay? This is, I think, the whole purpose behind the, uh, the Good Samaritan parable, that it's the religious folk who walk over the sick and the hurting and the broken, or they'll cross the street and yet it's the person who you wouldn't think. It's, it's the Muslim. It's the atheist who actually comes down and helps this guy. So it, it's, it's a very pervasive theme that you see in the, in the teachings of Jesus that it's the religious folk who are more often than not the worst like offenders of his law in society. That's why the Pharisees were his number one enemy and they're the ones who killed him, right? So as a Christian now, I'm doing this podcast with Marshall and um, we've been interviewing a lot of atheists. Like I think maybe three, we've done three or four atheists already. And the brutal truth is, is that they understand, maybe they don't understand that they're doing this is that they live out the peaceful side, uh, the, the generous side, the giving side of the gospel of what Jesus was teaching so much better than the Christians do. And yet the Christians ironically turn around and tell these people that they're so unrighteous, they're so unholy, and they're all going to burn in hell, you know. And it, it's quite frankly, Mr. Uh, Paul, Mr. Paul, it's quite frankly hurt a lot of these people, you know. They're, yeah. they're hurt by it. I mean, I literally, I just talked to um, one of these guys, one of our former guests, for two hours last night. And in our previous conversation, he told me that if he – as soon as he mentions that he's an atheist, like Christians just like their body language just changed and they take like a step back and he could see it in their face. And so 
he's told me that uh, I'm the first Christian he's ever talked to that really talks to him like a human being and also understands logic and philosophy. Because a lot of Christians just, okay, just the Bible, like we don't have to understand reasoning or thinking. And that is, I think, so dangerous because you have to incorporate logic to what you're doing, you know? Otherwise, you're just going to say, oh, I believe in anything. And you won't even understand the scriptures correctly, you know? And, so, and atheists won't respect you if you don't have a command of some kind of logic. Please, you know? please, Marshall, give your take. Yeah, well, that that's the thing, you know. Uh, atheists uh, oftentimes criticize Christians, uh, and, and many atheists actually come from Christianity. They often mm -hmm. have a command of the Bible. They often have some understanding of theology. And their problem, of course, is that it, it doesn't make logical sense all the time. And as a consequence... Uh, they turn from it once they pair that up with all of the abuses and, and the things that they see that are done in the name of, of religion. And as a consequence, they uh, I, personally, I think myself included, we're all rejecting a false image of Christ. And so in a way, we're not really necessarily condemning ourselves because we're waiting and we're open to, and this includes myself, by the way, the true image of Christ. But until I see that true image, I'm going to reject all the false ones that, that come to me. Paul, I got to tell you, there have been so many times during this podcast where uh, either Marshall, Marshall sent chills just up my spine and I break out in goosebumps everywhere because uh, these atheists, they're, they're understanding something fundamental that I think Christians are, are missing in the faith. And um, one of the guys actually, like literally... I, I, he made me cry because he said Christ was okay to go and hang out with the leopards, but you Christians can't go and treat a, a heroin addict like a human being, you know? And so my question is you and I can talk about what's wrong with Christianity from here to kingdom come, you know, but how do we as individuals or as collectively, how do we get back to what Christ was saying and um, get away from this? corrosive, um, abusive kind of religion that uh, seeks to attack people rather than trying to help them. I may seem to be beginning in an odd place, but, and so where to begin, I'm not completely sure, but of course, part of the problem is our basic understanding of what Christianity is. And this is uh, understood then through what are called atonement theories. And so the prime atonement theories, most people, this, this sounds so obscure, they don't even know what you're talking about. They all believe in an atonement theory, but they, they've never heard it described. And so there's the predominant atonement theory is what is called penal substitution. It's actually a late development, and it comes through John Calvin. John Calvin is following somebody uh, who is Anselm of Canterbury much earlier, but John Calvin uh, makes it even worse. And the problem with penal substitution is that it is a description of the death of Christ that makes Christ purely a sacrifice to appease the anger of God. And so two things are happening. One, your very understanding of who God is, is changed up that in Calvinism, but I would say also er, much earlier in Augustinianism, 
there is a perverse understanding of who God is. That yeah. God is depicted as actually a quite despicable person, that he uh, is angry and he can't control his anger, and Jesus in some way helps him get over his anger problem. And so there is a perverse understanding of who God is, but then there is also a reduction of what the work of Christ is about. It is focused simply on the sacrificial death of Christ. And you lose then the teaching of Christ. You know, actually, the Gospels are not the center of this understanding. Most people, if you would ask them, where is the center of the New Testament, they would actually point you to the epistles or somewhere else. They don't quite know what to do with the person and work of Christ or the person of Christ as presented in the Gospels. I think that's a, a good place to begin because uh, there is a perversity that once you make this move, Calvin is making the move, uh, Augustine is making the move. They're really doing it for the same reasons that people today are doing it. That with uh, Augustine, there is what is called the Constantinian shift. That the New Testament and early church for about 300 years is going to teach a very different understanding of the meaning of the work of Christ. But with the rise of a, a nation, you know, the, or the state religion that will come about, we call it Constantinianism, and it's actually a, a, a hundred year or a 200 year process. Certainly the person, the emperor Constantine is center to this, but it's actually a development within the church. And it is in this time that you have the rise then of, a, a, I think, a completely perverse understanding uh, surrounding things like original sin, uh, uh, surrounding the, the person, you know, why did Christ die? But all of this then makes Christianity amenable to agreeing with a kind of state religion huh. that it will become in Constantinianism. The Protestant Reformation doesn't resolve this problem; it simply aggravates it. So that that's why the the you know the you know the both Luther and Calvin were dependent upon these city states or upon a particular uh, form of government. And implicit, of course, is the notion of of violence. That in all of these situations, what you're also losing is a peaceable. Christianity. And so the doctrines of God, the doctrines of the person and work of Christ, um, the very notion of what the church is about, it's all going to be perverted, I believe, in and through an Augustinian uh, turn, in and through what is called the Constantinian shift. The death of Christ is to satisfy God's honor or you know, eventually what will become penal substitution in John Calvin. And so I would almost agree that in evangelical Christianity, what you have is a, a it's a strange episode, first of all, in the history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. In the way that the Bible is read, uh, it's mm -hmm. never been more perverse than it is now. Yeah, thank uh, you. The kind of, a kind of literalism. Uh, the degree of, you know, perversity in, I think, that the present political moment has exposed that. 
but it's exposed something that has been there. Um, and so I, I, I think that there is a history to it that in which if I had to, I, in fact, I do tell people, you know, that uh, if you had to choose between the God that is portrayed in evangelicalism and the devil, you know, actually, the devil comes out a little bit on top. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, because, you know, the devil at oh, least is a God. limited person uh, who does not have all the characteristics, the omnipotence, the power, <clears throat> and the perversity that I'm afraid wow. we attach to God. And so what happens in this religion? We use language that will lose any kind of real meaning. We, you know, just basic terms like love. If you have to hurt people to love them, you know, just uh, Ugh, term, yeah. uh, the whole thing. In other words, words no longer mean anything. Uh, and like so, double you, speak. It it is uh, there is a kind of uh, slippage in meaning, so that people can say things, but of course just things like loving your neighbor or basic things like that uh, are going to come to, to mean something quite different. And so this mm. is, I'm afraid that what we've got in the situation in this country, that, uh, that what is called Christianity, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying, I don't mean to be condemning everyone in these groups because there are good people that are better than the religion of which they're a part. And we all know that. Yeah. Um, but the religion is at its heart teaching a perversity that is going to misshape good people. And it's going to take, uh, uh, I think it makes uh, for very cruel. Uh, you know, people are not naturally, I, I just happen to believe that, that uh, people are not given to doing violence to other people. They're not given to, those, uh, to killing other people or hurting other people. But I'm afraid one of the most dangerous people you'll ever encounter is someone who is convinced that they speak for God and their actions are on behalf of God. And there is no more evil, uh, really, than, than that so sort of religious perversity. So yeah. that's, what, that's what we're up against. I can't remember the person, I think it was an Enlightenment thinker who said, and I could be wrong, uh, that to really do evil, that takes religion. You know, yeah, um, and and there's somebody out there who who has said that, and I can't remember the source of the quote, um, and it might have been even someone more modern, but yeah, um, Hitchens Hitchens was saying that a lot, but he might have been quoting someone else. Yeah, I don't think it was Hitchens' original idea, right? Um, but here here's my thing: if Jesus didn't die to atone for our sinfulness or whatever, then I've 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 got to ask a question. It's kind of straightforward. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to be crucified? So going back to my original picture of what, what is the human problem? I think, we, you know, in describing evangelicalism, I really haven't said anything that's not true of just humanity. That mm -hmm. people are perverse and religious, you know, the religions that they give rise to. And that perversity is... There's nothing mysterious about it. It's that people would go to war. They would do violence. They, as Paul will put it, they would do evil that good may abound. That's always the formula. Mm. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so Paul will give us that formula, I think, four different times in slightly different ways. You know, is the law sin? That is that we're going to imagine that the only way to achieve goodness is on the basis, you know, think of Stalinism, think of religious sacrifice, that the way that you're going to get at the good is through the evil. And there is then in this whole process the, imagine, the, the understanding that death itself is in some way redemptive. This is true in sacrificial religion, that death itself, I talked about an idolatrous understanding that reifies or makes substantive something that's not. Well, the ultimate non-substantive thing that is made or reified as if it is salvific is death. Ironically, this is what you're getting in a perverse Christianity, that the death of Christ in some way is pictured as required by God. And, you know, does it, you know, God eats, feeds off the, you know, whatever it is, it's nothing, it's just paganism reduplicated in Christianity. But actually what Christ is doing in his own death is defeating this understanding of death as some reified category, as some substantive thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he's defeating it in his the manner of his own death. He submits to it. And then in his resurrection, there is the public display. The tomb is empty. Death, the grave is empty. This category that controls us, it may control us subconsciously, or it may control us, you know, through the religion. Uh, I've done work in psychoanalysis that I, I think it controls us at a psychoanalytic level. This is what the work of Christ is doing. We can put our finger on the human problem, and we just didn't need to describe that problem. It's not, you know, that there is a multiple, there may be a multiplicity of manifestations of that problem, but the deep grammar of the problem is the same. Whether we're talking about nationalism, whether we're talking about perverse religion, or which, whether we're talking about personal human neurosis and psychosis, that I think it's all linked to this singular problem. And also then, once we understand that, then we can understand how it is that Christ is addressing a universal, the universal human predicament. I've got to ask one more follow-up. It's just, it just eating me up, man. So if I understand correctly, then the sacrifice of, G of Jesus is actually to demonstrate to us that death has no power. Look, death has no power over me, has no power over your soul. And, and that's the purpose of the, of the death of Christ. It's not about then the sacrificial lamb taking on all of our sins and being sacrificed to atone for our sins. It's about the destruction of death itself. And that's correct. And let's expand on what we mean by death. You know, in, in some way, death is just a biological fact. But that's not quite what we're talking about, is it? Mm -hmm. Because we understand that death, as if, if we take that as if it is our life principle, and this, of course, is what is talked about in the New Testament, but it's also, you, you could talk about it psychoanalytically or in, in many ways, that death is actually the violence that we take up. And violence is also a big term. I don't mean just the physical violence, but the violence that we might do even to ourselves, the basic masochism or sadism of the human condition. And so the, we're also describing then a death dealing 
understanding that Christ is defeating. We cannot pass up the fact that violent men, because of their religion, because of their politics, they killed Christ. That is central to the story. We can't lose the historicity of the story. They killed him, and that's part of what he's defeating. In other words, the ultimate trump card of Rome, the ultimate trump card of Judaism even, uh, is what they did to Christ. So he's de defeating a socio-political religious category in the defeat of death. And so it, it is, it's not simply the fact of biological death, but it is this orientation that is definitive of the human condition. I think uh, if you take a look at what um, what Paul, well, not Paul, but James says in the New Testament, he says, he says, what causes like the problems that are happening among you? And, he, and he's, he's, he's asking a rhetorical question because he says, he says, don't they come from the battles that are raging inside of you? And what I expressed in this podcast was that that battle that we have inside of ourselves gets projected out to other people, whether it's in the form of arguing online or physical violence or um, just trying to use our religion to feel better that, hey, I'm not like that person. I'm not like this person. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in Christianity is whenever you try to define yourself by things that you're not, you know or to try to use your religion to feel superior to others. And I think that was probably the number one thing that I hated the most about religion growing up. And then I went to college, Central Christian right. College of the Bible, which where you were a professor. And um, what I saw there firsthand with my eyes was a bunch of people trying to scapegoat other people trying to act like they didn't have all of this stuff going on in their lives. And of course, being there in the dorms, you got to see the guys firsthand what they were outside of classroom, you know, and you just got to know the kind of things they talk about. And then you would get to know later on some of the things that they were bragging about. And so I look back in retrospect, okay, we're a bunch of 18 and 19 year old kids really that did not have proper mental uh, development. Okay. Our last guest was talking about how maybe guys don't even fully develop till the, like, the age of 25 because of their brain development. But I can't really say that that was like a, that we should go off of my Bible college experience. What I'm trying to say is the, the way that they were behaving there is I see them taking that same kind of mentality out into the real world. Hey, I'm not as bad as a transsexual. I'm not as bad as a, as a gay person. Uh, this Ravi Zacharias guy, I, I'm sure you've heard about. Uh, have you heard about the scandals that he was involved with, uh, Paul? Yes. Well, and then you'll listen to his, uh, his lectures and he's openly ridiculing uh, gay people, you know? And then you say, well, hey, you're doing that, but you're turning around and you're behaving in one of the most egregious uh, ways you can as peddling your religiosity um, as some kind of grounds for it's okay. Because that's what that that was probably the worst thing. I, I As guys, I understand, hey, we slip up, we do stuff. But he was actually telling these women, hey, you can't... Uh, 
you can't expose what I'm doing or millions of people are, might go to hell because I can't continue my work. You can read that report online. But I think I had asked you, where, where can we start as Christians? And for me, what I'm starting on this podcast is exposing my weaknesses. I'm exposing my flaws. I'm exposing the ways that I don't live up to Christ's message. And I think that's a good starting point. And I think people have appreciated the honesty that I've had in this podcast, because I think that's one of the things we need to start. I think that's a starting point in, uh, in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, if, if I want Christians to be less hypocritical, Mm-hmm. The best way for them to do that is to actually understand the teachings of Christ. Because until today, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And this is why, why what Paul had to say today, it's not just gold. It's like, it's like platinum, man. It's platinum to my heart. Um, it, it's that precious and valuable, you know? Um, but, but the thing is, is I want Christians to know this because I guess what I'm trying to say is I can tell, I can sense is it like, like, like this Christianity that we see this toxic Christianity or Christo fascism. It doesn't pass the smell test. It, I, I get the sense that, you know, that, that ain't right. There's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this guy. It's like a smooth talking, slick backed hair car salesperson, you know, with the toothpick oh, in his mouth. Right. I, I'm like, wait a minute. There's just something not right about this guy. You know, he comes across like he's your best friend. But I get the idea that something's just wrong, and, and I'm not sure if I want to buy the car. And that's what I get when I see Christianity. But when somebody comes up and says, hey, you know, uh, presents an authentic Christ to me, the idea that Christ is saying, look, man, there's nothing to be afraid of. Death has no sting. The tomb is empty. Oh, man. All of a sudden, my anxiety just melts away. It just goes away. You know, that tells me. I've just had a brush with the real Jesus. I, I like, like he just brushed past me in a crowd. Who was it? But something just, some energy just went into my, my soul just now. And um, I, first of all, I just want to say thank you for that. And I'm certainly going to think about this a lot. Uh, I don't know if it's going to bring about my, my conversion to Christianity, but it certainly caused some scales to drop from my eyes, which have been caked on by all of the fake Christianity, I guess, or the religion uh, that I've seen out there. So, wow, that's crazy powerful. So that's what I've got to say. Hey, uh, I want to change it up for here a second here, what we're talking about. Maybe we'll have you on on a second. I don't want to overwhelm any listener, but... uh, (laughs) Or or a (laughs) co-host. Yeah. (laughs) Or my... Actually, um, that was kind of aimed at myself. But... um, Mr. Action, what is your favorite Japanese food? Uh, I I am actually, I like katsudon, which is not, that may sound kind of funny. But I also like uh, sashimi and sushi and, uh, yeah. This is so funny uh, because, um, you know, top ramen, oh, God. <laughs> top ramen is like the, like the cheapest food you could possibly buy. I remember when I was in college, uh, we went out and we bought like like a thousand uh, top ramens because uh, uh, me and my roommates and we, we wanted to come up with this cookbook like 101 ways to cook ramen. We, we made it in all I mean every last thing you can mix it to it. And uh, I mean I do that now. I put in onions and maybe some meat or some rice. Uh, those little rice cake things. But 
uh, it's funny because you go to Japan and it's like a luxury meal, right? I guess they're trying to emulate what, what it is uh, instantly, but it's actually a pretty good meal, right? I, uh, the thing I miss, and I, it kind of shocked me when I came back to the States, I just long for Japanese food. I just mm. it narrowly, and uh, it, that year that I came back, there happened to be a group of Japanese here, and we'd get together every week. And then wow. we'd have a Japanese meal. And I, I just literally would sit and cry because wow. uh, I, I missed, I realized, boy, I, I just missed it so much. They, 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 there's this one that I used to go to in, um, in uh, I think it was in Fresno. And the guy was straight up, he would be juggling his, uh, his spatulas. And it's, he's, just, he's like making music with the, as he's doing, there's making it right in front of you. Teppanyaki. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. What else can I because, you know, I live in South Korea. So uh, what do you miss most about like the culture? If you had to ask uh, the if Japan was Christian or not, of course, we always think that Japanese and Japan is as far from Christianity as you can get. Mm-hmm. But there is a kindness and a, a kind of beauty to the culture that I would very much connect with the, the, the a Christian beauty mm. uh, that I very often find, I, I just find it missing here, a gentleness and kindness in people uh, that I, I strangely, I, I'm not saying it's completely absent, but just on a continuing basis there. Yeah. I, I, miss, I miss that. I'll tell you one thing that really gets me living in South Korea is that you did not have to ask these people to wear masks. No, you did not no. have to ask them to to love their. And I see that as loving your neighbor as yourself, you know. So I'm thinking, most of these people, maybe about half of them are Christian, or less than half of them are. And I'm like, and more people are Christian in America. And I said this, you know, I said this in a in a in a mask video that I'm going to post in here but I said we should have been as Christians the first one wearing these masks and the first one to say I'm going to love my neighbor as myself so I think there's a lot of ways that I mean I I went into Palestine and I stayed at a mosque for a week and I saw the love of Christ in these people in a way that I never have in Christians so I think many times um you would see it's the drunkard over there. It's the, it's the prostitute who understands God's heart many times better than Christians. And I think that's a very sad thing. As, as far as Japan goes, uh, I guess all I can say is uh, I really like sushi. Uh, I would love to visit Japan. It is on my list of nations I would like to visit. There's so much history. The culture is absolutely phenomenal. The politeness, the cleanliness uh, absolutely stuns me, fascinates me. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's absolutely remarkable that, I mean, there's so much to admire about Japanese culture. In fact, it's on my short list. If I couldn't be an American, what would I want to be? And Japanese uh, might be uh, a close second. So. Well, uh, you whenever know. you come out to Japan, you have to come <laughs> visit me. Because actually, I've, I've never met Marshall, uh, Paul. Oh, we haven't met is, in person. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't met in person. So I already know. I don't need to hear it. I already know Christians. Some Christians would get angry that I'm out talking to animus and um, 
secularists and, and atheists and not actively trying to convert them, you know. Uh, I am subtly trying to convert uh, Marshall. He's on a 5.5 um, on this like Richard Dawkins thing where seven is like absolute certainty that God doesn't exist. So every week I'm asking him where he's at and he was always saying 5.5, but I'm just trying to get him to like a 5.4 and I haven't <laughs> been able to do it. So you might have moved that that thermometer one degree, which is great. But, you know, we're, I'm joking on that. But I think as Christians, you know, we need to start off with some humility first and saying, hey, I don't have all the answers. And I know, I know I can learn from atheists. I know I can learn Christian values from people who don't necessarily understand Jesus the way that I do. I know that I can learn. I know I can learn from a bum who doesn't have any money. I know I can learn a lesson from this guy. Humility. So, um, and I'm not, not saying you're a bum, but just some bum <laughs> off, some random bum off the streets, you know? So I think if we can start there and treating these people with respect and listening to them, hearing them out, hearing the hurts uh, that they have, I genuinely, and I may be totally, maybe I've interpreted, misinterpreted Jesus Christ, but I really believe, I'm not sure if Jesus could use the internet if he was here, but, uh, I'm not sure if you do a podcast, but I think this would, might be something that I'd get a, bit, a fist bump from him. Are you guys familiar with uh, Slavoj Žižek? Yeah, I've heard of Žižek. Uh, I'm not too familiar with him, but I believe, yeah, he's, uh, I think he's like Czechoslovakian or Hungarian. Uh, and, and I believe he's a left winger, if I'm right. I could be wrong. Yeah, he would, he, uh, of the, the, I think maybe the most, profound atheist of the period. And I did my PhD work actually on Zizek. Mm -hmm. And Zizek in combination with the Apostle Paul. And so the point is, you know, oh, do, does atheism have something to tell us? Uh, I think that in a this period that uh, the Zizek, of course, is working with uh, psychoanalytic theory, philosophical theory of Jacques Lacan. And so there is a, there, that in the perversity of Christianity as we have it, there has been a kind of departure. These guys have recognized it. And so, yes, I have a profound appreciation uh, for uh, that perspective. Uh, all I'm, all I'm going to say is, uh... You don't have to preach to or evangelize a person necessarily when you're the real Jesus Christ. I think Whoa. by their fruits, you know them. Ooh. And you're like, oh, I want more of that. I want that. You know, uh, if you're having a hard sell, uh, you might be the guy with the slick back hair and the toothpick on the on the car, car lot. You know, uh, true value doesn't need a hard sell. This is pretty heavy, so I would kind of like to end on a little bit of a, a lighter note, but we're kind of just discussing um, and these things, just kind of some ways to find common ground apart from religion or politics and kind of just talking about some things that we like. So we want to do a little quick uh, rapid fire round on you where you just tell us what you prefer and uh, just so we can get to know you a little bit better. But all right, I'm going to start this off. We're going to rotate back and forth, but uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Coke. Favorite sushi? Uh, <laughs> maybe Bonito. <laughs> uh, favorite uh, breakfast cereal? Uh, 
Lucky I like, Charms. I I like oats, raw oats, almonds, uh, blueberries, and yogurt. Favorite period of history. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hard to pick. Uh, I, I, strangely, I, I would go with a, 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 a modernist period, not because I like it, but because I'm into examining it. All right, last one. If Jesus was alive today and he had a car, what kind of car do you think he'd be driving? Toyota Prius. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> All right, uh, Paul, we really, really, really want to thank you for your time. Uh, oh, I appreciate it, guys. Good to meet you, uh, Yeah, Marshall. and um, we hope to Same. see you back again, actually. Uh, you, you kind of, yeah, you definitely uh, made me think about some things differently, and uh, we appreciate your opinion. So, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing you back at the next episode of uh, RHE Podcast, where we're showing respect, humility, and empathy as we're trying to look to solve some of life's biggest problems. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. All right. Bye-bye. I want your head, your face to be big like mine. Okay. I don't want you to be little while I'm huge. That's. Am I getting bigger? Yeah, you're good. You're good. That's fine right there. Okay. That's fine right oh, there. Oh, perfect. You look great. Well, I know I look good. I don't know about you, uh, Isaiah. <laughs> but... <laughs> When I when I had my when my son was a baby, I'd have him out in public, and people would be like, "Oh, he's so handsome," and I would be like, "I know, but don't you think my son's good looking too?" <laughs> <laughs>